and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Paul Dickinson. And I'm Cristiana Figueres. And while Tom takes a well-earned break, Cristiana and I invite you to join us for a live interactive recording of the podcast in April. We're going to take a look at the recent climate policy announcements in the UK and also worldwide. And we're also going to speak with John Alexander, the celebrated author of the book Citizens. And we have music straight out of Nashville from Banditos. Thanks for joining us. So listeners, as you might remember from last week's episode, we spoke about how great it would be to actually host a live recording of the podcast following the overwhelming response we received after we aired Tom's miniseries, Momentum vs. Perfection. So we are very excited to announce that this is going to happen. There's going to be an Outrage and Optimism live event, and it's going to be taking place on Wednesday, the 19th of April at 4.30pm UK time or British summer time at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. 4.30 p.m. British Summer Time, 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday the 19th of April. Please join Christiana, Tom, Fiona from Tom's podcast and myself to take part in a lively discussion of some of the things that came up from Tom's Momentum versus Perfection mini-series. We'd love to hear your questions and all details are in the show notes. But here is Clay to briefly let you know how to register for free for our live recording and how to let us know your advanced questions. Thanks, Paul. Uh, so listeners, it's very simple. Just go to the show notes right below this episode. There's a link there to go straight to our website where you can register for the event and save your spot. Um, once you save your spot, you'll get an email that will have a link to a voicemail inbox. And if you have a question for our hosts that you want to ask during the live recording, you can go and record that question right there. It's like this online recording software. It's pretty cool. Anyway, we're really looking forward to hearing your questions. So I just wanted to mention it. That's how you do it. Link in the show notes, register, record your question. There you go. Right. Thank you. Thank you. And so over to you, Christiana. So listeners, um, do register. We are very excited and really looking forward to hearing all your questions, your comments. This promises to uh, be a not all, all uh, together coherent or concise discussion, but rather all the contrary. So very exciting to go into, uh, into some of the perspectives and experiences of all of you with respect to that challenge between, or, or let's say the gamut, the gamut between momentum and perfection. Everyone has experienced it in one way or another, and we are excited to hear about your experience from, um, from that. And we also wanted to let you know that next week, the week after Easter, for those who celebrate uh, that holiday, uh, we're going to be taking a brief break, in part because of us, but also because we want to give you some time to listen to Tom's miniseries, which is a two-part miniseries. By the way, not short, <laughs> each of them longer than Christiana would like. Um, but this gives you some chance to uh, re-listen or listen for the first time to those two episodes and get ready for the live recording, having previously registered that you're going to join us on Wednesday the 19th. So we look forward to that. Thank you, Christiana. Thank you. And all of us are hoping as many of you as possible can join us on the day. Now, before John Alexander joins us today, um, I wanted to hear, Christiana, uh, what's on your mind? And I think before 
just now, you, you mentioned something about the World Bank that caught your attention. Yeah, the World Bank. So um, listeners may remember uh, that uh, we had a very hard time with the lack of leadership of the previous president of the World Bank, David Malpass. And for all intents and purposes, David Malpass has now been replaced by the former MasterCard CEO, Ajay Banga. Now, he will uh, be formally uh, given the job next week at the spring meeting of the World Bank, but he is the only candidate. So, uh, luckily for us, I should say, because he That is, always helps when you're trying to get a job, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. But luckily, I think for the world, uh, he will um, he will definitely step into this very, very difficult moment at the World Bank. This is not just the spring meetings of any year at the World Bank. These spring meetings that start next week are a critical, critical moment for the World Bank. Um, a couple of things coming up. Rumor has it that uh, the World Bank has already decided that it's going to lower its equity to loan ratio by one percentage point from 20 to 19%. What that actually means is that they would free up $4 billion a year and that they would invest that into climate spending. And that sounds pretty good, but there are many who think that is absolutely the starting point, but definitely not the final steps that the World Bank has to take with respect to allowing or with respect to making more funding available to developing countries. Many of them are calling instead of one percentage point to go down to three or maybe even five percentage points, which gives much more additional finding. Now, in addition to that, we have, as we already discussed on this uh, on, on this podcast several weeks ago, we have what is called the Bridgetown Agenda that is going to be presented formally by Prime Minister Mia Motley of Barbados. We had an, an in-depth discussion about that, but that really has at its heart a complete revamping of, uh, of what the World Bank might do with respect to developing countries. And it is not only Prime Minister Motley that is calling for serious reform. The uh, very renowned economist Nicholas Stern and Vera Sangwe have actually written a report calling for a rapid sustained investment push that prioritizes of course, the transition to cleaner energy and achieving the UN sustainable goals. Let's remember that those are also due by, uh, by 2030. And on top of that, we know that African ministers of finance are soon going to come up with their own to-do list for the World Bank and India's Ministry of Finance is pulling together an expert group to consider World Bank reform. So not, not an easy moment for Ajay Banga uh, to take over leadership of the bank, but perhaps a fantastic moment, one that is pregnant with possibilities because the outside world is looking at the bank and saying, no way, you cannot continue business as usual. And that opens political space for Ajay Banga to come in and do reforms, which he would have to do, of course, with the approval of the board of directors. Now, 
Finally, I should say, when in doubt about what is happening about the World Bank, turn to our good friend, Rachel Kite, who we've also had on this podcast. Rachel has written an excellent article that we will also put in the show notes uh, for you, because as one who has worked both inside the bank and with the bank from the uh, from the outside, she puts out a very interesting list of uh, the big picture tasks that Banga has in front of them. And she says, um, she characterizes it like this. She says, first of all, be a true CEO that brings together a disjointed conglomerate of different institutions under the World Bank Group. Then stand up as a collaborator with other regional development banks because the World Bank can't do all of this on its own. It needs to collaborate with the regional development banks. Thirdly, convene the entire financial sector, which Banga might be able to do, especially because he would do it in consonance with Kristalina Georgieva, who heads up the IMF, and who frankly had a very hard time with David Malpass, but we suspect, is much more aligned with Banga. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Rachel says Banga has to champion the vulnerable. Let's remember the purpose of the World Bank actually is to address poverty, i.e. he has to be the champion of the vulnerable. So quite an agenda for uh, for Banga, but a very, very exciting um, and not easy moment for the World Bank Group. Hmm. Well, I mean, Rachel Kite, who's been on the podcast a few times before, not only does she have a brain the size of a planet, but she also was vice president of the World Bank, so she knows what she's talking about. Um, and how exciting to have that agenda open. Uh, Bridgetown agenda, Mia Motley's leadership, Avi, who spoke eloquently on the podcast, I think just a month or two ago, about the potential for the Bridgetown agenda to redesign everything. So that is very exciting, Christiana. Now, Paul, you probably want to speak about something UK-related, and then I'm going to have to jump in with another international um, topic that has to do with Japan's presidency of the G7. But first, over to the UK. Yeah, and, and it's true. I'm going to tell you, tell listeners something about the UK, but not because it's the UK. I'm trying to draw out a bigger principle here because, you know, an awful lot of comes across our desks um, and it's conflicting and it's a bit difficult. Um, I particularly noticed that uh, the BBC commented that uh, the UK government has unveiled a new net zero plan, but it's been met with criticisms from environmental groups. And this was in response to the High Court ruling that the government's existing plans were not sufficient to meet its targets. So rather than try and take on this big issue, I'm going I'm to zero in on a little issue. I've been doing a tiny bit of investigative journalism. You know, I've put on my kind of raincoat and I've gone out there and I've, and I've beat the streets. And here's where I've got to. This stuff is complex, but I'm going to pick up on one regulatory change that came in on the 1st of April this year. So it came in four days ago as we we're recording. And it is a measure to reduce, yeah, you heard me, uh, it re re reducing the uh, tax for passengers on UK domestic flights. And domestic flights? What that? happened with the trains? How were you talking about flights? Do you know what? Uh, you know, my grandpa wrote a book called Electric Trains. Trains are brilliant. Everybody loves trains. There's nothing wrong with trains. And really smart countries uh, like France, for example, are banning uh, flights less than a certain level. 
the UK has reduced passenger duty on flights. Um, and The Guardian did some great work. Actually, it's not my journalism, it's theirs. But they got a freedom, or actually an NGO they were working with, Open Democracy, got a freedom of information request and found out that airlines lobbied for a cut to the duty uh, in the UK, despite the carbon emissions, the airline Ryanair said in its submission March 21 that it would be able to offer more domestic flights at low prices and has introduced more, more flights since then, including one from London to Stansted, which is like a, not very far. Uh, from Stansted to Cornwall, I should say. Also, um, it's, this article said the airlines rejected a frequent flyer tax. I don't know how airlines get to reject laws that are coming in. EasyJet, big airline, said in its submission to the government, our analysis shows that if the AD, APD is reduced 50%, this would support an overall 31% increase in domestic volumes of flights to 10.6 million passengers. And British Airways owner, the International Airlines Group, told the UK Treasury positive outcomes could include new routes, increased frequency, and larger aircraft on existing routes, as well as lower fares. Now, this is just crazy. This is just crazy. Um, the government, I looked at the government website and they said uh, the total net impact on emissions of the reforms, because they are increasing the charge for longer flights, they said, is forecast by 2026 to 27, estimated to be negligible. And I actually called up a civil servant and because I had a number on her website. It was very sweet. And she was so frightened to talk to me. Like, I think, you know, I, I can't read into it, but she was like directing me to the media department. I think everyone knows that this isn't right. Paul, you know? Paul, you are a true menace when you, you know, pick up the phone to a, a public servant or a representative of a company. I've been there. I've heard how you speak to these people. It's actually quite intimidating. Well, I, I had a friend. Who Please said don't would... ever call me like that. I, I, the bravest person in the world on the phone, I've been described that. But to be honest, I don't want to be like a horrible customer or something like that. And I'm never actually cross with the individual. I'm cross with the integrity of organizations that should have high integrity, dragging their, their poor employees into this mess. But um, look, I mean, are we going to reduce tax on cigarettes? Are we going to, uh, you know, that, that would just sound in incredibly crazy. Um we can't. You, you, Christiana, you put it so beautifully when I was talking about the, the sort of plans of uh, Aramco, maybe. We can't increase emissions. Uh, we have to have a principle that we can't do anything to increase emissions. And the point I want to make, the, the point I want to make is we're not going to make it if we keep doing this to each other. We have to recognize that it's like racism or something. It's an absolute. You can't have like some racism is okay and, and then other racism is bad. We've got an absolute principle here. We're not going to cause any actions anymore that increase emissions. So that's my little postage stamp story. Uh, everyday low prices, like a boot being smashed into a human face for eternity, to use George Orwell's peculiar phrase in an unusual context. We have to try and ensure that we as a people in all nations, never do anything that causes emissions to increase. That should just be a simple law and we can all follow it and end of speech. Now, Christiana, to go to the other side of the world, quite literally, I believe you had an observation about Japan. Yeah, but I, I first just want to say, Paul, that you are so right about this, you know, adopting a principle of behavior, principle of policy that... Uh, while it's bad enough that we don't have policies that are radically reducing our emissions, there's no way that we can accept any policy that actually allows for the increase of emissions. I mean, are we completely bananas? It is, you know, this, this is what I would call 
and and actually I think Japan is also an, a case for this, the battle for the future. Mm. Uh, and and we're seeing so many proof points of this battle where the policies or the decisions or the investments uh, that kept the past afloat and thriving are trying to keep their space in the present in order to, frankly, thwart our future. Uh, we also see, thank heavens, that's the outrage part of our uh, of our podcast always um, and of our view on the world. But we also see on the um, on the positive side, we also see, fortunately, proof points of uh, a better future emerging. And, and we're always caught here in the middle, right? We're always caught. And, and it's so difficult to, to steer through all of this that evidences itself as a very, very messy transition. Point in case, your point in case, thank you, Paul, about um, taxes on domestic flights in the UK. Point in case, Japan. The uh, presidency of the G7 goes to Japan this year and ministers will meet, uh, and in fact, a few days after the World Bank meetings. Now, the presidency of these international meetings always carries a, let's call it a political baton for what they want to put on the table. And grab onto your seats, but the Japanese government wants to put on or has already put on the table what they call their green transformation or GX strategy, which is a set of measures for uh, 22 sectors after 2030, to increase hydrogen production, which as we know, if it's produced with green sources, with renewable energy, is actually a pretty good thing. But in this case, they want to use brown coal, which is the absolute worst kind of coal, uh, to produce hydrogen. And then, because they know that that is highly polluting, then they seek to clean it up after they have dirtied it uh, and slap on carbon capture and storage technologies. Absolutely crazy. First, to produce a highly polluting, highly polluting fuel, and then expect CCS technologies to take out the pollution from the fuel. Why don't we just produce hydrogen cleanly, which is the only rational way to go. Of course, the high cost of CCS still could kill this in the end, but it is just lunacy to even propose this. Germany, France, and the UK have already pushed back against that. But, you know, it's very interesting. The US hasn't publicly come out in a pushback because the US needs Japan to be its political ally in a, let's call it, China containment strategy. And so here we are. What is currently uh, more urgent, the international security issues or the climate issues? As though there were a difference between the two. And Paul, you have made this abundantly clear that climate is an international security issue. But these people think that they have to choose between the two. Now, 
In the face of this, please count on the amazing Mary Robinson, who I call Mama Mary, <laughs> who uh, traveled to Japan and read them the Riot Act. I mean, she is just so absolutely fantastic. And we will have her on the podcast in just a few weeks. Um, maybe we'll also ask her about this, but she's actually coming on to talk about the Dandelion Project that she is launching together with a hundred, um, uh, together with several other women. Now, the as I said at the very beginning, there's always proof points of um, of outrage, but there are also some proof points of uh, of light and of um, hope and optimism. And here they are: about two hundred of Japan's CEOs have decided that this is absolutely crazy. And not only that it would not support the 1.5 degree uh, centigrade ceiling that we're all wanting to work toward, but rather, here's the real winner. The CEOs say that it would undermine competitiveness because the CEOs who are grounded in the real economy rather than in political nightmares in the real economy, they know that demand is growing for low carbon or no carbon services and products. So very interesting how this battle for the future is playing out under the baton of Japan, under the G7, but has permeated um, also the industrial force of Japan. Christiana, as have a, a, a great summary of uh, some complicated politics. The the Japan US one, I think, um, is very interesting. But looking, stepping back a bit, um, wise people have convinced me that rather than the cajoling of one country to another, we could well quite soon see competition for regulation and the regulatory environments and governments. Um, competing for investment by having the most advanced economy because they've got the best policies to decarbonize. So whilst I think you've made a really good description of, of the blockage and, and salute Mary Robinson for going in to, to break that blockage, I also think we can hope and wish to see to the other side of that where, you know, climate change like the internet or something becomes about the the, the rapid deployment of a response being the, the thing that guides a society rather than the cajoling, which is natural at this point, but it's probably not the long-term story. Is that fair? That's fair. Now, um, on this one, ultimately it's about society coming together, I think. And maybe that's not a bad time to segue to our guest this week, John Alexander, because he is perhaps best known for writing the book Citizens, uh, which is an extremely brilliant way of describing, well, let's leave it to him actually to describe it. Now, John's history is, is originally in the advertising industry. He spent 10 years at top advertising agencies because he felt inspired to support actually a response to uh, 9-11. You know, after the, the fall of the Twin Towers, um, governments literally said, we've got to get our economies going by spending. Uh, the US government sent checks to people and John felt he was kind of supporting the national and global interest by advancing commerce. But after 10 years, he had an epiphany. He spent some time uh, working at the National Trust doing very interesting work on making a farm uh, open to the public uh, to decide how the farm should operate. But then 
then he's founded the New Citizenship Project and written a book about how it will take all of us to fix everything. And so let's go over to John Alexander, who's a sweetie and someone I've known for a while. John Alexander, what a joy to have you here on Outrage and Optimism. I've been listening to you on a lot of podcasts recently also as preparation for this interview. And you have three master's degrees and one of them we did together, uh, although a few years apart, the Responsibility and Business Practice MSc set up by Anita Roddick. But I'm guessing you didn't meet her when you were on the course because I think she'd exited by that time. Yeah, I was. Uh, I didn't have that pleasure. I did have the joys of uh, of Peter Reason and one or two others, and and of your good self, I think, Mr. Dickinson. There you go. Well, it, well, it was a lot of fun. Um, it's such a, a joy to get a chance to really check in with you because you have done a fantastic job of, to some extent, reframing what we're doing. I think it's maybe a political reframing of of our society. Um, maybe economics has always been politics in in camouflage, but. Can you start us off by just giving a, a little bit of the overview of Citizens, why you wrote the book and, and what you want people to do when they've, when they've consumed it and, and, and how you see, you know, I've, I spent so long writing funding proposals, your theory of change. That's the phrase I picked up on. But, but John, Citizens, tell us how you came to where you've got to. Can, it, can so I let, just say, before you answer that, John, just for listeners who haven't seen your book, that the subtitle is so fantastic and already gives a preview why the key to fixing everything is all of us. I just think it's such a brilliant subtitle. So sorry, I just had to sneak that in before you answered Paul's very good question. We are on commission from your publishers, by the way, so buy the book. John. You're always very welcome to interrupt Paul to praise me, Christiana. Let me get that oh, okay, the right okay. way around. Um, so, uh, yeah, so... Let me start maybe actually with my a little taste of my favourite uh, story from the research for the book, which is actually the story of the, the transformation of the Taiwanese government over the last decade or so. Because I think there's, there's a lot that we might unpick in, the, in that for what listeners to this podcast might do, uh, whether, whether in their professional lives or their personal lives, and for the kind of theory of change question that you're starting to hint at, Paul. Um, basically, I'll, I'll do the short version. You'll have to read the book for the long version, my friends. But... Um, but the story starts back in 2012. The, the government of Taiwan at the time uh, launched what they called the Economic Power-Up Plan. And they did it with TV ads that said things like, um, let's not waste time talking about policies and complicated things like that. We'll get on with growing the economy and you get on with your lives. And it's a, it's a form of communication that I like to call shush little people just go shopping. Um, and it seemed to go down okay at first. But what happened was that uh, a group of hackers originally started to organize. And they called themselves GovZero because their main way of working was that they created parallel websites, the government websites, all with the URLs uh, ending g0v.tw. Uh, and on these websites, what you could do, they, they scraped a load of data, made it available to upvote and downvote. They did conversation menus so you could download them and talk about the workings of government around your kitchen table, all this kind of stuff. It wasn't enormous. Don't let me overstate it. It was essentially a kind of arts project. But it started to grow. Two years passed, 2014 came, and the government tried to rush through a trade bill with mainland China under the banner of the Economic Power-Up Plan. And at that point, a protest broke out and the protesters occupied the Taiwanese parliament. And what they were doing there was they were using the GovZero tools to debate the clause of the trade bill. 
And the Govzera gang got a broadband connection in and started streaming footage of what the protesters were doing all over the country. And at this point, a kind of critical moment came because the Speaker of the Parliament came under pressure to boot the protesters out. And, and he didn't. Instead, he said, this is, this is what should be happening here. This is what this space should be for. Wow. Yeah. And in that moment, the whole story, and we'll come back to that word, I'm sure, the whole story of the relationship between citizen and state shifted. Uh, the Speaker promised the protesters that the trade bill would get due scrutiny. It got due scrutiny and got thrown out. Six months later, there were municipal elections all over Taiwan and candidates were elected, often from nowhere, who'd stood by the protesters. And uh, in response to that, central government invited one of the leaders of the hacker movement to become a mentor to a government minister and started to bring the workings of GovZero into the workings of government. Fast forward another two years, 2016, there was a presidential election, power changed hands, and that person who had, who had been invited to become a mentor now became a minister in their own right. So hacker to mentor to minister in four years. And then fast forward another four years, as I say, and, and when COVID hit, it was that person who led the Taiwanese COVID response. And, and they characterised that response by three principles, fast, fun and fair. Uh, and, they, and what they essentially did was crowdsource the national response. The, the president made a speech where she essentially said, we don't know how to deal with this challenge. This will be bigger than anything we've ever faced. What we do know is that we'll deal with it best if we tap into the ideas and energy and resources of everyone. Uh, and they did things like high-tech things, like they set up challenge prizes where people would create apps that would track face mask availability and case outbreaks and these sorts of things. But they also did some very low-tech things. They set up a phone line where any citizen could ring in with ideas for how the country's re response could be better. Uh, and a, and a six-year-old boy rang up. That's my favourite part of this story. A six-year-old boy rang up and said, the boys in my class don't want to wear their face masks because they're pink and they think that they're girly. So you need to do something to make pink face masks cool. And I think you should work with the baseball team. Uh, and three days later, they had half the Taiwanese baseball team, the little boy and the president, all on the national televised press conference resplendent in their pink face masks. Now, the reason why I, I, I went straight there and wanted to tell that story at such length, and, and like I say, I think we'll unpick it and, and get into it. But the, the, what that speaks to for me is an, is an entirely different idea of who people are and what we're capable of, and therefore a different idea of the role of leadership. I think we've been in a place where uh, the default story of the individual in our society is the consumer story. It's a, it's a story that says that people are individuals, that their agency is limited to choosing between the options that someone else offers, that their primary motive will always be self-interest. And that story is deeply limiting of who we are, what we're capable of, what change we can make. And, and what I think the Taiwan story speaks so powerfully to, more powerfully than any other example I've yet come across, is an entirely different idea that says that actually people are citizens. People are creative, caring, capable creatures. And, 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 if, and the right way, the most powerful way to face into the challenges of our time is to invite them in to get everyone on the pitch, to, to tap into the idea that all of us are smarter than any of us. And if we can, if we can invite that, 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 that huge diversity of wisdom and energy and insight, who knows better how six-year-old boys think than another six-year-old boy, <laughs> then, then that is how we will best be able to face the challenges. And so I wrote the book, I wrote the book really because, I mean, I've been wanting to try and get these ideas out of my head that I've been working with for a decade or more. Um, but I wrote the, the the sort of the moment when I wrote the book was was during that first wave of COVID when I I, I knew about what was going on in Taiwan, and, uh, but all that we could see in the UK was 
a very limited picture, an idea uh, that limited people to what they could do. And so I, I wrote the book really to, to offer a different way of seeing the moment in time we're living in and offer a different, a whole different strategy, really, for, for leadership and for us as individuals. So, John, mm. I totally love that. Sorry, Paul, can I, can I jump in? This is your interview, and here I am. No, hacking, it's not. No, it's not. Hacking into your interview. <laughs> no, no, no. Go for it. Go for it. So, John, I, I totally love the the story of Taiwan, but I, I love what you're positing. Um, and I, I, I would say the reconception of what leadership is in the 21st century is, uh, is so critical and so urgent to move from leadership that is positional to leadership that actually um, has to do with the capacity that each one of us has to elevate others to do the right thing. Um, and so it's it's uh, it, it's such a beautiful, it sort of puts the concept of leadership, or turns it on its head um, and, and really invites each of us to look at ourselves and others, all of us as potential leaders. But I wanted to draw you back to one moment in that story, um, John, that seems to me as the turning point where from everything else cascaded. And that is the moment in which the Speaker of Parliament said, instead of throwing them out, uh, said, no, 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 this is exactly what we should be listening to. What is your theory as to what was that moment of enlightenment for the speaker? How, because anyone else under previous uh, hierarchical thinking would have called the police and thrown them out. And that was a turning point. So what what happened there? What what led to the speaker having that brilliant moment of enlightenment to realize this is a historical opportunity to change the way decisions are being made? I'm I'm so glad you've taken me there. So this this, this really is the heart of and the edge of my thinking and learning at the moment because uh, that moment I agree was completely crucial and I and I believe that moments like that are what we need to create and or harness if we're going to make the changes that we badly need to make. It's, it's, uh, you guys have been talking about tipping points on this podcast for a long time. That, that, was, a, that was a social tipping point. Yep. Now, the, the way I see it, um, I think what it speaks to is a, is a theory of change that says that, that, that humans are citizens by nature, that this is who we are. We don't need, therefore, to be... The work isn't to teach people to, to be citizens. The work is to, to, uh, to reshape the story such that we, that we invite people into who they want to be already. Uh, and, and I think what happened in that moment, to answer your question directly, I, I, I've, I think it was a combination of the, the mindset and the skill set of Speaker Wang, um, who in many ways from the outside doesn't look like the most likely. He, he was a, he's an old, he's sort of oldish guy, a, a member of the governing party by political affiliation, although like in the UK, they sort of step away from their political affiliation to become speaker. He'd had a very good career, but he, he was considered to be at the end of it. He was considered an establishment figure. But maybe there are some things. He, he, he's... Taiwan has only really been a, a, an electoral democracy even uh, for the last... 
20, 30 years. Um, and, and, and he would have, ha- he had living memory of autocracy. He had living memory of, of where this might go. And I think that, that was part of it. So I think there are some things and, and he had some skills. Clearly he had some understanding and some deep connection to his, to his values and his, and his way of seeing the world. But I think also um, the agency wasn't just with him, it was also with the GovZero movement. And I, I think the other critical moment uh, in this was, was when the GovZero gang reacted almost immediately to the, to the occupation of the parliament by getting that broadband connection in. Uh, and ensuring that it was possible for people all over the country to almost immediately start seeing what the protesters were doing, and the fact that those protesters were 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 discussing were were enacting the citizen story essentially, and 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 so for my to my mind there's a there's a there's a sort of equation taking shape for me about how we how we create how we design for and harness these moments when the story might shift that mm-hmm. is some sort of combination of the mindset and the skill sets of the of the politicians of the leaders uh involved and and the visibility and the um the 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 way that we as demonstrators of the new story make that visible and and to some extent unignorable like how you how you live that out and and that is a theory of change that i'm now um working with playing with in some ways uh in in everything i i'm doing uh, you you may your listeners and and you may have noticed in the last week or so the uh before we're recording this the launch of the uh, a project called the people's plan for nature yep. which has been i was i've been involved in from the beginning um bringing together the big nature ngos in the uk to to come in behind the public uh, and 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 hear the stories of community action from all over the UK, and then to convene a citizens assembly, and and develop a set of recommendations that that truly come from the people of the country, and 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 those NGOs coming in behind those, at the same time as David Attenborough is on our uh, is on the nation's screens with a with a celebration of British nature, and the idea of that it's a, I'm not saying it's perfect. I I'm, I. I and I, I, I'm continuing to try and figure out how we might do more of this. And I'd love to engage in this with, with your listeners and with you. And, but it, it is an experiment in going, how might we create the kind of, uh, create the kind of cultural moment where, where the story might shift? Mm. Well, well let, me, let me quote John Alexander uh, on leadership because you've said some interesting things. Um, that I really wasn't expecting and I really enjoyed you talking about new forms of leadership. Uh, you, you said leaders need to be able to say things like, I need help. <laughs> leaders need not the answers, but the questions. Uh, you said government needs to learn to trust the people, which I think is a, a, perhaps a huge piece of learning. And the idea of um, leaders as facilitators uh, to trying to create safe uncertainty, which is something I think perhaps uh, Christiana knows a lot about from the, on the road to the Paris Agreement. And I mean, just today, I can't resist saying that uh, Jacinda Ardern said, you can be anxious, sensitive, kind, wear your heart on your sleeve. You can be a mother or not, an ex-Mormon or not, a nerd, a crier, a hugger. You can be all of these things. And not only can you be here, you can lead. So where else do we see? Do you see that type of leadership showing up, John? I'm sorry to sort of pin you on these 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 practical details, but you look so keenly with the eye to see. Uh, I'd love to hear what what catches it. I mean, the honest answer is I see it emerging everywhere, but 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 taking hold as yet in relatively few places. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And maybe I'll just add a, add a, a, a if I may unpack just briefly that the, because the work I do is rooted not just in two stories, this idea of people as consumers or as citizens, but there's also a third story, which is the, which I talk about as the subject story, which is an idea that of, of, of that there are a God-given few who know best and will lead us to the best outcomes and they will tell the rest of us what to do. And, and the reason I go there in this conversation about leadership is to say that I, there are prob- I think there are two types of positional leadership uh, or two... Uh, manifestations of it. There's one which is the 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 one which is easy to dismiss, which is the kind of which is the domineering, the the, the command leadership, um, which is what we what we what we think about when we kind of caricature bad leadership. I think. I think that the in the and I think that comes from the subject story. I think in the consumer story, actually, there is that that for me is where leadership gets at least purports to be flipped on its head, and we talk about servant leadership. Um, but I still think that that's still trapped in a in a kind of in an idea of the leader of the leader as separate. And so for me, that the the citizen story is one where the leader actually is neither commanding nor serving, but is but is facilitating, is convening, is holding the space, is is eliciting. And I, I, I get frustrated by by the lack of it in the climate world. If I'm honest, I, I feel like uh-huh. the there is too much that says people need to be served still in that world. I, d- I don't think, and I think it comes to, um, if, if you are, think, think about the, the, the speeches I say that the, the, the Taiwanese president gave, where, where what the, the starting point was, we don't know how to deal with this thing, but what we do know is that we'll deal with it best by tapping into the ideas and energy and resources of everyone. That is very different Collective saying, wisdom, collective wisdom is what she's right. talking about. She's also expressing uncertainty and, and, and not trying to say we're on it. And, yep. and I and I feel like far too much still we're in a kind of uh, we're in a, we're seeking to say to people don't worry like we can do this. There's a sort of there's a version of the optimism that you guys talk about. I know it's not the one you really mean, but there is a version. There is a manifestation of optimism that says it's going to be okay. That everything is fine. Right. Don't worry. Yeah. And and I think the the kind of radical honesty of the kind of leadership I'm talking about. And uh, is to say, it's we don't know if it's going to be fine. In fact, it's it's not going to be fine. But it, but but what in 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 many senses. But what we can do, and what we do know, is that we'll make the we'll make it the best we possibly can if we get everyone involved. And I think that um, that kind of leadership can be is so needed in this moment because without it there's this sense that I think we all know actually we all know that 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 this isn't sort of fixed that we're not on top of it that that we're not in the right place and 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 acknowledging that and being deeply honest about it is for me the thing that will create the space for us to to actually get everyone involved yep it's really interesting one of the um I'll give you a, an example of where I've seen this leadership manifest in a really dark way which is I, I, in the research for the book. One of the things I did was uh, was I went a little way into the. And I sort of hesitate to say this, but I, I want to go there. Um, I went a little way into the QAnon conspiracy theory world. And you came out alive. I came out alive. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the starting point on that journey is is you are needed. Yeah. The, the first message is we need you. Oh, how interesting! Wow. That's an invitation. Your country needs you, right? Right. And people, like humans, 
humans need agency, right? Like they, we yeah. don't need everything to be okay, but we do need to be needed and we need, and we need to be able to shape things. This is, it's why take back control was such a powerful line, right? Like, and, and I think it's uh, the way I would describe the moment we're in and the dan- one of the deepest dangers of the moment we're in is that, um, too many of those, of us, I will say, who, who are trying to create a better world, who are trying to avert the climate emergency, who are trying to, to do good stuff, are starting from an understanding of the rest of humanity as, uh, as needing to have it done for them. Yeah. What happens as a result of that is not just that it doesn't get done because, because there are none of, no one of us can do it for everyone else, but it's also that, that those who are, who are who we're trying to do it for are actually becoming ever more resentful because we're denying them agency in this moment when when they know that we're not on top of the challenges and so they start to seek that agency anywhere they can find it and from anyone who will offer it them and and those who would actually rebuild the subject story those who would take us back to into a kind of authoritarian world those are the people who are realizing that Offering people a sense of participation, offering people a sense of agency is a is an incredibly powerful thing to do. And like it's not by accident that I that I bring up the story of Taiwan where a parliament was occupied and then mention the QAnon conspiracy, right? They, they, we saw January the 6th and you contrast the what happened there with what happened in Taiwan. Yes, exactly. That's what was going through my mind when you were telling the story. Exactly. January 6th contrast. Well, how ironic, John, that um, that you mentioned the QAnon. How ironic that something that leads to autocratic decision making is um, is started by the magnetism of we need you. You can participate here. Um, and, and then that gets completely chopped off because then everybody has to obey uh, the orders that come top down. But how ironic that um, that the opening or the invitation to join is exactly the opposite of the ultimate destination, but that they understand that that is the way to invite people in. Exactly. And, and I think we can see it crop up almost everywhere. I, I've in the in the sort of in some of the revisions I've made to the book, I've talked a bit about uh, about Ukraine and 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 Putin's invasion, and you can see again the, the three stories I talk about. Putin's uh, logic is absolutely subject logic. The 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 Ukrainian response, the defiance and the and the and the energy and the distribution of power there is very much a kind of citizen energy. Yeah, that's been backed up then by 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 all over Europe, Poles and Germans and and Brits offering their homes to those people and and trying to chip in any way they can. Even through to people using Airbnb and TripAdvisor and things to to post accurate information. Like it's a true kind of citizen energy to the to the to yeah. the response, and then. What I worry is that the 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 kind of the, the official response, the kind of the the big capital W Western response, 
is is still too much from within that consumer story. Is still one that 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 says we will we will manage this with sanction and we will we will, and doesn't say to people doesn't come in behind that that nascent citizen energy and say we need all of you. Like what more can we do? How can we how can we tap into your energy? What more do you want to do? Like it's the same again as in COVID. It's the same again as we saw when when our governments assumed that all we wanted to do was go back to normal. And so, so when the the kind of when the immediate logic of, of of stay at home and do as you're told started to collapse, actually then shifted the the message to things like eat out to help out. Unless we can see this 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 opportunity of leaning into and stepping into a story that sees people as citizens and invite them into their power to do kind of meaningful work in this time that is deeply needed, then. We are we are pushing people into the arms of the of the subject story. I think totally. Now, now I, I I do know another story for your for your rolodex of stories. Um, I was actually in Puerto Rico in in early 2020, and um, somebody involved in the disaster response pointed out that actually those people who came together after the storm survived, and those people who didn't come together actually died. I mean, it's shocking to see you know that that. 2,000 people died in this month after the storm, literally because they hadn't got food or water. You know, the whole island was devastated, but coming together was the survival story. And you, you talked about leadership. I mean, I am forever mentioning on a five-pound note in the UK, it says, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But when a political leader actually tells the truth to the public, it can be galvanizing, it can be empowering. And you know, another thing that you've said, and you quoted John Rebecca Solnit, but I do love this quote because it, it's so true, uh, that we need to steal the teddy bear of despair from the loving arms of the left. Uh, that, that you know, you talked about us looking at this chasm and, and thinking about what stones we're going to hit as we fall down. And you said, build the freaking bridge across the chasm. And so is it right to interpret your message as one of, of, of kind of em- empowerment and, and to sort of re- reframe ourselves? You know, because I've read listener, listener comments to Outrage and Optimism. A lot of people sort of say, well, what can I do? Um, I, I think one, one of the things you've said quite powerfully is, well, one of the first things you can do as an individual is stop being an individual. <laughs> But I mean, you know, how 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 can we, you know, sort of what's a, I guess the toolbox for for action is in the book to some extent. To some extent, and I, and I think there are two um, almost two distinct toolkits for action. The, the book is in a way probably too ambitious, um, which is probably captured in the subtitle as well, right? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I guess I'm. The the primary audience for the book really is addressing people in positions of power and influence, is addressing leaders and saying, please, for the love of God, see people differently. Um, see see people as participants in what you're trying to do in the world. Don't see them as needing to be served. And there's a whole set of tools around how to frame you, what you're trying to do in the world as a question rather than as a statement. How to what what you might what different things people can do to participate in a cause, from gathering data to sharing connections to telling stories. To, and, and so there's a whole toolkit from that perspective. But I think the the challenge at the level of the individual, like what can I do in my personal life, is is another and is 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 hugely valid and I've been trying to do some more work on this as well and it is in the book and I guess um, I think there's probably a three-step response to that for me. Okay, here we go. Take note. Take out your little piece of paper. I have my pen. I have my pen. Or your tablet or whatever. Here we go. John? Come on with the three steps. Uh, Come on with the three steps. (laughs) 
The first step is um, I talk about as like finding home. And what I mean by that is is really um, choosing a domain, a, a space, a community to commit to that you feel part of, that you feel passionate about, that you that you want to improve, that you want to make better, and and that you feel you have permission to act from within. And that might be geographic, it might be the your, the place where you live, it might be where you work, it might be it might be a kind of industry, cross-industry thing um in a, in the sector you work in. But choose something. It's your chosen community to belong to a community of like-minded. Exactly. The second step uh and this maybe is a little different to what you might expect, is to find the others. It's, it's, it's to find those who, who, who also want to do something in that space, to, 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 to bring people together. And only then is the third step to decide what the first thing to do is together. And, and sorry, John, to find the others and invite them in or find the others and what? Find the others, invite them in, come together, like convene for the sake of convening initially. Like celebrate something together. The, the 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 first the first step is to choose the community. The second step is to is to is to meet, enlarge <laughs> is to the see community. One another. Right. Yeah. And and only then is it to act. Uh, and and critically, it's to act together. Um, and 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 if you do that, the the I think so many like I always contrast what I'm talking about with 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 the the parallel recipe from within the consumer story, and I think the consumer story the the way to be good from within the consumer story is the sort of list of a hundred things you have to do to save to to you can do to save the world right it's like but they're all individual and they're all and they're all kind of context uh, agnostic and they and 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 what I want to break away from is that sense. Both that sense, of, because because the truth is that true agency is always collective. One of the one of the lovely discoveries in the research for the book is that the word citizen literally derives from language that means together people. Like this is who we are, um, and and so I'll give you an example that I I I really love, which is the. Um, uh, an organisation called East Marsh United in Grimsby in in, in North East England uh, started up in the East Marsh, um, but in in what was effectively one of the roughest neighbourhoods in the country, like the, the street where county lines gangs were active. There's a story about there being a dead dog in a bathtub for four weeks because none of the housing associations or the police would come and help because they just othered this community to the extent where it wasn't worth it. A guy who I've become very close to went to a, a councillor meeting quite. Uh, he didn't want to go, but a neighbour of his said our mums would have gone. So he went along and, and he didn't want to go because it would just be another kind of lamentation of everything that was wrong. And, and at that meeting, he, he stood up and he said, who cares about this place? Who loves this place? And and then when when lots of people actually put their hands up, he said, "Why don't we just let's start let's let's go and clean up one street. Let's not sit here any longer talking about how wrong it is and 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 investing all of our agency in this councillor who who's, who can't do it for us because they haven't been able to. Let's just come together tomorrow, clear one street, and go for a drink, and then we'll and then at least we'll have done something." That that starting moment. 
became a regular gathering, uh, became a, a, a magazine called the Proud East Martian, uh, became a, a six-monthly arts festival called the Sun and Moon Arts Festival. And last year, they ran and successfully fulfilled a £500,000 community share offer, which in, in that part of Grimsby is enough to buy 10 houses, refit them using good local jobs and let them out as a social landlord to create a sustainable revenue stream for the rest of the organisation. I, and and I could have I could have told you I probably should have told you better more climatey stories from about community no, energy that's a beautiful versions story, of this. John. But but this 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 when you start to look for it, you find these stories everywhere, and you start to you start to see that. And this a bit goes back to what you were saying, Paul. You were quoting quoting me embarrassingly on, on my on what actually is my view of the the quite dangerous role that our media is playing in this moment in time mm. which is i think i think far too much of our media is um is staring into the chasm and trying to as you as you quoted me like trying to figure out trying to be right about which rocks will hit on the way down and and completely ignoring the work of the Billies, this this guy Billy Desane and, and and the East Marsh United crew, completely ignoring Kennedy Adede and the work he's doing he's doing across the slums of Nairobi, completely ignoring Imi Kaur and what she's doing in Birmingham. Like I could go on and on and on, uh, but the, these stories of this emergent reality, this 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 emergent deep story, this idea of the citizen are. Are, are not being told and and I find it I find it mind-blowing that I'm pretty much the only person I think who's who is telling this story of the Taiwanese covid response these these guys these guys published a, a, a paper in an English language journal listing 124 things that they had already done before the UK even went into lockdown like this stuff is available <laughs> yeah, right. You, you got you got to salute the speed with which the other side move. I met people who sort of crowdsourced the Icelandic constitution in a kind of an afternoon, and now that the country is very well governed with it. But uh, look, John, I have to hand over to Christiana, but I want to say a, a big thank you. Um, also, the introduction to your rook, book written by Brian Eno, who is is a genius, but he wouldn't allow me to say that because he would say geniuses come out of a, a group of people they come out of a scene and and brian eno calls it senius so so thank you for for partnering with him to sort of raise the profile of how we can find the genius in the in the scene in the senius but it falls to me to hand over to christiana for a little bit of a tradition john yeah. Well, John, I am so sorry that we're running out of time because honestly, we could sit here and just pepper you with questions and the questions are really just temptations to hear you speak and share your your thinking. So, um, so thank you so, so much. Um, but sadly, we do have to come to a close and listeners will know that the tradition is at the close to ask our guests two questions. So are you ready? Our podcast, yes, yo, yo, you're getting nervous. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Our podcast is called Outrage and Optimism, not just uh, coincidentally, but actually through a very clear uh, view of the world that we need to continue to be ever more outraged at what we have not done yet. And at the same time, it's not a but, and at the same time, optimistic about what is happening that includes all of your wonderful stories. So we just wanted to put you on the spot and ask you from where you stand right now, uh, what 
continues to make you more and more outraged? And um, what what are the rays of optimism in your life? I think the thing that makes me most outraged is the role is actually the, the, the kind of the hero complex of too many of those in positions of power. Like, I'm not actually so worried about the people who would try and kind of take over society and subject us again. I'm more outraged at those who who I genuinely believe are trying to do good things in the world, but are doing it, are trying to do it for people instead of with people. And I, I'm talking about our media, I'm talking about leaders of nations, I'm talking about leaders of business, uh, some of the some of the most fated names, I think, are, are, are still trapped in that idea that their role is to do for, not with. I, I, I have a funny relationship with the with the concept of optimism. I, I really like Rebecca Solnit's thing about hope, where she says um, optimism is a belief that things will be all right no matter what we do, and pessimism is a belief that things that things will be rubbish no matter what we do. And hope is about clarity and imagination. I really love that of hers. Um, mm. uh, but but I, I guess what what I always go back to is is a deep faith in 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 humanity like i i yeah. just i i think humans are incredible creatures and and i and i believe that so much of so many of the barriers and so many of so much even of the worst things that are happening in our world are actually coming from shared pain not from not from ill intent and i think if we can and and so what always gives me hope is seeing that the, the I've had these lovely moments in talking about the book where I've had people come up to me who've said who've actually quite a few people who've said to me that they had they had been seeking the right political outlet and they'd gone to places like the Reform Party and not found what they were looking for and then they and then they see in what what these stories and what what I'm talking about something that actually speaks to the truth in them. So that thing of like actually I think the I think the rage of our time is is in in huge extent of frustration and that insight gives me makes me deeply optimistic. And John, if I can quote you one final time, uh, I think you said beautifully that, you know, we need to sort of love humanity as well as loving nature and you can't set them off against each other. And that that kind of trope in the climate community is kind of like, oh, humans are ruining nature. It's kind of like, duh, you know, it's one thing, one love, one great mass that needs to grow and evolve. One love, my friend. Here, here, John. John thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you so much for, um, well, for coming on. But also, we we know how much work it is to put a book together um, and to communicate these ideas and find words for for things. So, thank you very much for going to all of that um, effort in order to elicit a very different reaction in everyone to the challenges that we're all facing. Thank you so much. If you'd like to start a new uh, newspaper called the the Global Citizen, uh, I certainly will be one of your first subscribers. So, so uh, I, can we have that we positive go. news? You heard it here first. Very good. Thank you for having me. Cheers, John. Well, what a sweetie is John Alexander, and I can see him fired up by this reimagining of people that 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 he used to call subjects under the kings and queens 
then were called consumers under capitalism. And he's so pleased to that they will, will kind of break out of this capitalist um, consumer caterpillar and turn into citizen butterflies uh, and be able to do things that, that they couldn't do when they were caterpillars. Um, and, and, and more power to that, that vision. What, what did you make of the conversation, Christiana? Yeah, I was also um, thrilled. He, he really invites us not just to have a different view of the world, but a different view of ourselves, of self, who are we, uh, and what is our role or our contribution um, to the world. And, you, you know, I've, I've come to the point where I think the word empowerment or empowering has been so overused that I've, I no longer like the word. But it actually really fits for this um, for this context in which he's inviting all of us to discover our own potential, our own agency, our own mission, our own purpose, um, and that is just so refreshing, so so refreshing. Yeah, and there's a broader theme here for me personally, which is that he is rejecting the idea that everyone being selfish in a capitalist system is going to lead to the best kind of outcome. And, you know, people talk about like market failures. And I've, I've always wondered what people really mean by that. Because was the idea that if everyone was really, really selfish, we'd like solve climate change. I don't think it's exactly a market failure. I think it's an idea that, that the market could do everything failure. That's a bad idea. You know, Thatcher and Reagan and all of that was just like, their, their ideology was let's hide and let's see what the private sector does and then and then we'll let's see where we end up and you end up with like a, a very fast evolving society but one that can have catastrophic problems like climate change but i i i think that, he, that another thing that he said uh, in in an interview was that organizations is so to say non-state actors like corporations investors ngos uh, and governments, of course, but they are the great storytellers of society. And I think that the ability to to find another story and and even to to open a dialogue to say, well, how are we going to have policy? How are we going to have regulation? How are we going to change as a society to deal with this problem together? Because you know, if 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 the government just has to kind of like come up with plans and then the public say no, and then we're stuck, that doesn't work. We've we've got to kind of come together around a solution. And I think his his citizen vision is is helpful to frame the thinking around that. Yeah, for, for those who want like a cheat sheet <laughs> of the book, he has a great table in the book with three columns, very simple, um, in which he conceptually moves from being the subject of uh whatever laws, et cetera, et cetera, to being a consumer and then to being a citizen. And I just think that it's such a helpful table um, because it very clearly denotes the progression of, of, of self and of the view of the world, but also makes it so simple to see the interconnection. So on his column of citizen, which is clearly what the book is about, um, he says we actually move from being dependent through being inde to independent and then to be interdependent. And we work with citizens, not for. Uh, we actually uh, engage because of purpose. We participate actively instead of obeying or demanding. And and one of on that table, one of the um, choices that I think is so incredibly helpful is he says we've moved from print to analog and to digital uh, in the citizen world, and that to me is so. Uh, 
representational because when I, moving from print to analog, I think we've all sort of gotten that. But from analog to digital, not only dematerializes that which was analog and which and which was print before, but actually it opens the boundaries to connect and interact. Um, and that's what digital is all about. It's about the network. It's about the interconnectedness. And um, so I just, I, I just love that table. It's such a compelling um, progression of thinking and conception, as I say, of self and of the world. Really, really recommend buying the book, looking up the table, and, um, and really incorporating that into our everyday action. One more line from that table, Christiana, is the idea that the subject is in a kind of, you know, command model, that the consumer is in a serve model. So the, the kind of leaders of society is kind of serving the consumer. But the, the lead, leadership as a function in the citizen model is as a facilitator. And certainly, I, I think, you know, the the the, the, the privilege that I've had for two decades working with enormous corporations is not for a second trying to tell them what to do because they're very big and they're going to do whatever they do. But actually offering for them to 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 have a platform to say what they think should be done yeah that's strong stuff strong stuff yeah yeah well he said it himself right not command leadership not servant leadership but facilitative leadership beautifully put and and uh, uh, you are christiana if i might say so a very very fine facilitator and we can see what happens when for example all the world's governments come together under a single agreement because they were facilitated there so last cheeky question to you christiana what's the essence of good facilitation listening <laughs> that's a, that <laughs> was an easy one listening <laughs> you thought you were going to you you thought listening. you were going to volley me a very difficult question no nope, that's an easy one it was the way uh, for those who are listening to this and can't see christiana her face lit up beaming and she said listening there you go the art of facilitation <laughs> well so, paul i'm afraid we have to close the uh, close the books here Unfortunately, we do. Thank you very much to our wonderful guest, John Alexander. And details of the purchase of his book and how to follow and engage with this project can be found in the show notes. And also just a reminder to register for the live Outrage and Optimism event. And we look forward to seeing some of you on the 19th of April at that event. And for those who can't make the live recording, you can look forward to hearing the episode on Thursday, 20th of April. And we will now leave you with a fitting piece of music that fits right in line with citizenship. And this is The Waves by Banditos. And lead singer Mary Beth Richardson has a quote about their music I'd like to share. She says, Everything we write is from the view of every person. We're all in it together. Handing it over to the band now uh, to intro the song, and then Clay will meet you afterwards with the credits. We're going to miss a week. Have a lovely break, and we'll see you in two weeks. Hi. Hey, it's Steve from the band Banditos. Our song, The Waves, tells the story of someone making friends with the feelings of being lost not knowing what's going to last, not knowing what to do with those feelings, eventually doing nothing, nothing at all. Much like the dependency we have on non-renewable energy sources. I'm hopeful, however, that there's an affordable boat to the shore, a solar-powered boat for free for everyone. Only came here for the weekend but I ended up spending time Spent about three whole years I spent my mind It's nice out on the island 
least it was for me at first I didn't have to think too much I had so much thirst Had a hard time getting back Got caught in the waves as they roll The waves as they roll there you go another episode of outrage and optimism this is clay from the outrage and optimism team thank you for listening the track you just heard is the waves by banditos banditos's latest record uh titled right on is available to stream and purchase it's 
a really fun record made for everyone. I've been spinning it this week. Uh, please go check the show notes to go listen to them. And always, you know, if you like the music, just go buy the record. It's it's the best way to support the artist. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, Banditos. Man, they have such a great sound. And uh, speaking of buying things, Citizens by our guest, John Alexander, comes highly recommended from our team. Check the show notes for a link to purchase and other ways of getting connected with John and the work that he's doing. Thank you, John. Um, As you can tell, I'm going fast here. I'm going to cut the show notes pretty short this week because the podcast has been running a little over projected time. So thank you for listening this far. The only ask we have before I let you go is please register for our Momentum versus Perfection live event online in two weeks. You don't want to miss it. Uh, Again, it's on the 19th. A link below to save your spot. And if you have a question that you want to put to our host during that live recording, as I mentioned earlier, I opened up this voicemail inbox where you can record yourself asking your question. These submitted questions will be a main part of the live event. We want you to participate and we couldn't be more excited to hear from you. So, okay, looking forward to your questions. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye.